The word of God is good, it is powerful, and it is true. Through its proclamation, God opens the eyes of our hearts that we might see him, that we might know him, that we might obey him. And we ask that God might bless the preaching of his word this morning. If you are new to Emmaus Road Church, or if you have been gone a few Sundays, uh, we are in the book of Mark. We're in chapter 12 this week. We're going to be looking at three verses today. So it's going to be an extra long sermon. Three verses. Hopefully you don't have anything cooking in the oven right now. I'm just kidding. We're not going to be here all afternoon. Um, For the last several weeks, we have seen Jesus confronted by the religious elites in Jerusalem. What has taken weeks for us in Mark's gospel has been one very, very long day for Jesus. Before we get into the text this morning, it might be helpful to get our chronological bearings. As you recall, we're in the third and final act of Mark's three-act gospel drama, of the life of Jesus and his ministry. Act 3 opens with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey's colt and to the messianic praises of a crowd of pilgrims who are accompanying him as he enters into Jerusalem. This is the Sunday. His triumphal entry is the Sunday of his Passion Week. The next day, on Monday, Jesus re-enters Jerusalem with his disciple and immediately proceeds into the temple to flip tables, to drive out money changers, and to chase off all those who are doing business in the court of the Gentile, that area that was reserved for those who were far from God, those who were Gentiles, this was the closest they could get to the presence of God in the temple. Jesus drives out the busy work. Jesus and the disciples once again leave Jerusalem, presumably to stay in Bethany, which is just east of the city of Jerusalem, likely at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The next morning, Jesus and his disciples make the trek back to Jerusalem and the temple, where he's immediately confronted and questioned by the religious authorities. Chapter 11, verse 27, identifies these interrogators as the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. We noted previously that this is just simply a longhand or an explanatory note by Mark explaining that these are representatives from the Sanhedrin, the religious governing body of 70 leaders from sects of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The scribes, who were not necessarily a sect in of their own, were experts of the law and could be from, they could be Sadducees or they could be Pharisees, But they were the experts. They were the professional scholars. They were also known as lawyers in Luke's gospel. From the end of chapter 11 through the entirety of chapter 12, Jesus is barraged by questions. Lots and lots of questions. Intense questions. First from the delegates of the Sanhedrin as a whole. Then by the best of each sect. Each sect selects members, its its key members, to send to Jesus, to interrogate him, to ask him questions, to cause him to stumble. They're all trying to thwart, to trap, 
and to discredit Jesus as a legitimate teacher. And therefore prove he is obviously, obviously, if he's not a legitimate teacher, he cannot be the Messiah. All of this takes place on the same day. All of it on the same day. Tuesday of his Passion Week. As we've seen, Jesus repeatedly turns the table on their trick questions and false dilemmas. First, it was the Pharisees, then the Sadducees. Jesus amazes and humiliates both groups with his superior biblical wisdom, his insight, and his unrivaled authority. Then, as Trent showed us last week, a scribe, a single scribe approaches Jesus. Not an entourage of scribes, just a single scribe approaches Jesus and asks what appears to be a sincere question. Jesus, what do you say is the greatest commandment? Interestingly, this is the first time Jesus doesn't respond back with a question of his own. Every other time, they ask him a question, and Jesus responds with a question. But not this time. This time, Jesus answers it. And for the first time, and the only time in the Gospel of Mark, the entire book of Mark, Jesus and a scribe agree. They see the same thing. They agree. But then Jesus ends the conversation, observing, you, you scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. As Trent pointed out, not far is not the same thing as in, as in the kingdom of God. The scribe is close, so close, but not close enough. Notice how the story ends. Uh, Mark notes in chapter 12, verse 34, uh, just preceding the chapter, or the verses we're going to be looking at this morning. Mark 12, 34, Mark notes, after, after that, after his encounter, after this exchange with this scribe, no one dared to ask him any more questions. No one dared. Commentator James Edward remarks, the wording of verse 34, particularly in Greek, is a strong and unequivocal, signifying that Jesus has prevailed over challenges from the Sanhedrin, verses 11, or chapter 11, verses 27 through 33, and its various constituencies, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. Jesus has bested the field. Jesus has answered all of their question and evaded all of their traps. He has won. But Jesus isn't done yet. In our text this morning, Jesus is going to ask his own question. So, if you will, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, if you're not already there. Verses 35 through 37 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And out of honor for God's word, would you please stand, if you are able... For the reading of, of God's word. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Mark writes, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. 
So, how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. May God continue to bless the preaching and hearing of his word. You may be seated. As I mentioned, it is Tuesday of Passion Week, Jesus' Passion Week. Tuesday, of course, has been a busy day for Jesus and for the religious leaders. A busy day that's been full of lots and lots of questions, intense questions, not friendly questions, intense questions. The religious leaders had asked Jesus a lot of questions throughout this day, seeking to trip him up. Questions about politics, questions about theology, questions about the law. But now, here in this passage, this morning, Jesus asked the most important question. A question about the true identity of the Messiah. Who is the Christ? The religious elites had tried to stump Jesus with questions that were important to them. But now Jesus asked them a question that is most important to him. Jesus challenges their understanding of who exactly is the Messiah. Who do you understand the Messiah to be? If you recall, Jesus had asked a similar question in Mark's gospel. Back in Mark chapter 8, verses 27, Jesus first asked his disciples this question. He asked them first, who who do the people, you've been out, disciples, you've been out among the people, who do the people, who do the people say that I am? Right, he he wanted to get a survey of, of what people understood, who they understood him to be. But Jesus didn't stop there. That wasn't the point. That wasn't the drive of his question. Jesus always aims at the heart, and so he does with his disciples here. He asks a more pointed, a more personal, and a more specific question to his disciples. Great, that the crowd, who do they think I am? But I really want to know, but who do you, who do you say that I am? Of course, Peter answers that question with great boldness, as only Peter can. But now Jesus is asking the same question, not in private, not not on a side trip outside of Israel to just his disciples, but he's asking it in the temple to the religious elites. We have to keep in mind that messianic expectation was high in the first century, but there was a lot of disagreement over who and what the Messiah would look like. For example, the Herodians thought perhaps Herod's dynasty was a Messiah-esque kind of reign. Maybe Herod and his his children, maybe they're Messiah-esque. The Zealots were looking for a revolutionary. More than that, they were looking for a rebel, someone to overthrow. The Pharisees, well, perhaps they were looking for a rabbinic Messiah. One who upheld the tradition of the elders. Perhaps a wise sage to inspire and thwart the Romans. The Sadducees, well, they anticipated a priestly Messiah to establish a royal priestly line. However, however, everyone agreed. Everyone agreed that the Messiah was a descendant of David. And this was at the heart of, it was at the heart of this certainty, 
of this absolute confidence, this certainty that all of them, not just the religious leaders, but all Israel, were certain the Messiah was a son of David. And it's at this certainty that Jesus strategically aims his pointed question. The reason why Jesus aimed here is actually the basis for my proposition. My proposition is this. Our messianic vision is too small. Our messianic vision is too small. Therefore, my my first point as we jump right into it is good theology can't save you. Good theology can't save you. Look again at verse 35. Mark writes, And Jesus taught in the temple, in the temple, and he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? This first question is just a setup for Jesus. It's a setup for his more targeted question, which will follow. But before we consider his main question, there are a couple of significant observations I want us to see about this first question. First, consider where Jesus is. Consider where he's asking this question. Mark doesn't want us to miss the the context, the location. Jesus is in the temple, the religious center of Israel, the seat of the Sanhedrin's authority, the epicenter of Orthodox Jewish intellectualism. Jesus isn't posing his question to a bunch of ragtag fishermen from the backwoods of of Galilee. He's standing in the ivory tower of biblical scholasticism. Jerusalem, the temple before the religious leaders. Second, notice that Jesus singles out the scribe. The Sadducees represent the priestly authority. The Pharisees were the moral watchdogs. But it was the scribes who were the intellectuals, the scholars, the experts in the word of God. Finally, I want you to note that, that this pericope this is, is a continuation. This, this narrative chunk that we're looking at this morning is a continuation of Jesus' conversation with the scribe from last week's sermon. That conversation, that interaction hasn't come to an end. It's continuing on. Remember, Jesus ended that conversation saying to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And now he's going to help him see the step needed to take to be in the kingdom of God. In verse 35, Jesus cites the official scribal position, namely that the Messiah was to be a son of David. And they're correct. The Messiah is to be a son of David. Just like the scribe agreed with Jesus about the greatest commandment, so now Jesus agrees with the scribal position. The Messiah was to be a descendant, a son, the seed of David. Their theology, well, it's it's not wrong. Their theology is right. It's spot on, in fact. They had read and they had studied their Bibles. They knew, if anybody knew their Bibles, it was the scribes. They knew their Bibles. They knew 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 16, where God promised King David. 2 Samuel verse 12, 12b says, I will raise up your offspring, speaking to David. Yahweh speaking to David. I will raise up your offspring who shall come from your own body. 
And I will, I will, I will establish his kingdom, 13b, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. They had likely memorized the Messianic Psalms promising a kingdom and a throne to a son of David. For example, Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. Yahweh said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, and I will establish your offspring forever. And I will build your throne for all generations. Or Psalm 32, the Lord swore to David a sure oath. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. The scribes, they they knew the prophetic oracles, anticipating a future Davidic ruler. Like Isaiah 11.1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the root shall bear fruit. Or Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute just justice and righteousness in the land. Or Ezekiel verse 34, or chapter 34, verses 30, or 23 through 24. Ezekiel writes, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I have spoken. In other words, it will be so. Because the word of the Lord has spoken. Keep in mind, David was Israel's greatest king. And as 1 Samuel 13, 14 says, David was a man after God's own heart. David was the gold standard in Israel. Every other king in Israel Israel was measured against David. Whether or not a king walked in the way of their father David was the measuring line, the ruler for the quality of that king. Did they walk in the steps of their father David? Or did they stray from the steps of their father David? If so, they were a good king or they were a bad king in accordance with their relationship to David, whether they were David-like. Of all the kingly descendants, all of them, all of them felt short, fell short of the Davidic standard. There was no king in Israel's history, no son of David in Israel's history that matched, that compared, that was an equal to David. And since in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was destroyed and the Davidic monarchy was destroyed with it, Israel had set their hopes and expectations on a future reestablishment of the Davidic throne. It was going to take a son of David to ignite a new, a new Davidic dynasty. It had to be a son of David. God had said it. It was going to happen. God promised it would happen. The prophets foretold it. Everyone knew the Messiah was going to be David's son. But here's the thing. The the scribes, they weren't wrong. The scribes' theology wasn't wrong. It just wasn't complete. It wasn't enough. 
It couldn't save them. The scribes were arguably the most biblically literate people in all of Israel. They knew their Bibles. They studied their Bibles. They memorized their Bibles. But listen, our best thoughts about God can never replace a personal relationship with Him, with the living God. It's not enough. God isn't impressed with our theology. Like the scribe, your theological system might be airtight, but your heart, your heart could be still deceitfully wicked, rock hard, or callously cold. God doesn't care much how much you know about him. He cares that you know him, that you love him. Just ask, just ask blind Bartimaeus, who saw Jesus for what he was, not for what he was, but for who he was. Blind Bartimaeus saw Jesus not for what he was, but for who he was. Or the woman caught in adultery, thrown at the feet of Jesus, guilty, ashamed, and condemned. But before Jesus, loved, forgiven, and freed by Jesus. Or the hemorrhaging woman, bent, broken, and bleeding for 12 years, but brave enough to reach her hand out, that she might simply touch the hem of his garment and be healed by the great physician. You need to hear me say this, lest there be any confusion. I'm not against theology. I'm not preaching against theology. I'm certainly not against reading or studying or memorizing your Bibles. I am all in. I am for it. I can't recommend that enough to you. But we... but. We must, we mu- you have to, you have to remember, we must keep in the forefront of our mind why we're doing it and for whom are we looking for when we open our Bibles, when we study our Bibles, when we memorize Scripture. Don't forget who you're looking for. Your theology isn't going to save you. There's only one that can. Our greatest theological postulations are are only ever our best thoughts about God. But they're not the same thing as a relationship with God. Only Jesus can save you. Peter makes this point in chapter 2 or chapter 4 in the book of Acts. When filled with the Holy, Holy Spirit, Peter proclaims boldly, and listen to who he proclaims it to, right? Peter is standing before the the rulers, the elders, and the scribes in the temple complex. And Peter proclaims to them, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 10, chapter chapter 10, verses 9 and 11, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, 
and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This then leads me to my second point. We must be confronted by the Son of God. We have to be confronted by the Son of God. After acknowledging the scribal position, the Messiah is indeed a son of David. Jesus takes the the scribe and the gathering crowd, this, this great throng, as Mark calls them, he takes them to the word of God. Look at verse 36. Jesus said, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1 specifically, which is a well-known messianic psalm. In fact, this psalm is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. There's over 35 or over 33 uh, quotations or references, direct references uh, to this passage, most quoted passage in the entire New Testament, not only in the Gospels, but in the Pauline epistles and other epistles as well. Originally, the psalm was a coronation psalm. It was a psalm that was meant to be sung or perhaps recited at the inauguration of a new king of Judah. Jesus quotes the opening line, which is in which there's a, there's a bit of a word play that doesn't come across clearly to us, uh, and it doesn't actually even come across clearly in Greek which is actually why in our New Testament, in Mark's gospel, we don't necessarily pick it up right away. To see this word play, we actually need to turn to Psalm 110. So in your Bible, I want you to see this. Turn to Psalm 110. We need to go back to the source. And there in our English Bibles, which there is translating the Hebrew, we can pick up on this nuance. If you're using the NASB or the uh, ESV, those are the two I checked. I I think it's pretty true throughout most translations, but definitely true in those two. You're going to notice this nuance. It's subtle, but important. Because our English Bibles translate the Hebrew... You can visually see the wordplay Jesus is getting at. Look carefully at verse 1. David writes, The Lord says, The Lord says to my Lord. Pay close attention to the two Lords that are there. The first should be in all capital letters. The, the L being larger font, but all the O-R-D should be in all caps. The second should have a capital L, but is followed by all lower cases. If you're familiar with your Bible, and you're, if you are, you're likely aware that this, the first Lord, capital L-O-R-D, refers to a personal name of God. In Hebrew, this relates to the personal name of God. We, we pronounce it Yahweh, but it refers to the name I Am, the name that Yahweh gives to Moses in Exodus 3.14 so that the Israel might know which God is sending Moses. It's actually the God of your fathers. It is the great I Am, the creator of heaven and earth. Let there be no mistake which God is going to deliver you, O Israel. 
You also might know that the Israelites did not pr pronounce the divine name, and instead they, they tended to use euphemisms as substitutes for the divine name. They, they wouldn't pronounce it for a variety of reasons. A primary substitute that was used is the, the Hebrew title Adonai, Adonai, which meant master or lord. This word occurs 774 times in the Old Testament, but over 50%, over 50%, it's actually 51.8, I did the math because I'm a nerd, and I'm curious about those things. 51.8% of the time, Adonai refers to or is used directly to refer to God, to Yahweh. It's a euphemism. So what's happening in Psalm 110? Jesus acknowledges that David is the author of this psalm, so David is the one speaking. It's from the voice of David. And David says, the Lord God says to my Lord, to my master, sit at my right hand. David is observing a conversation between the Lord God and another figure to whom David refers to as his Lord, as his, his master. This figure is therefore over or superior in position and authority to David. In other words, David sees himself as a subject of this lordly figure. Remember, this is a messianic psalm, so David can't be the figure because he's the author. Yet this figure is a kingly figure. Commentator James Edward again elucidates the meaning when he says, with the destruction of the monarchy in 586, Psalm 110 was reappropriated with the rights of the king frequently being transferred to the Messiah, the expectant Messiah, whose kingdom would not fail as David's monarchy had. The true and ultimate meaning of Psalm 110 was understood with reference to God and the Messiah of whom the earthly Israelite monarchy, David's monarchy in other words, and listen to this, had been a shadow or a preparation. Israelite expectation and messianic expectation was looking for a second David-like king. But in antiquity, in antiquity, a descendant of someone implied a hierarchy. The son was inferior to the older and more important forebearer. David was the most celebrated king in Israel's history. Yet Jesus' question in verse 37 asks, But if David himself calls this one in Psalm 110 Lord, then how exactly is this one David's son. In other words, he's appealing to this hierarchy. The hierarchy says the sons are underneath. They're inferior to the father. But then David points to Psalm 110 and says, yes, but the father is calling the son Lord. What's going on there? Now, in my household, um, I don't have, Ethan doesn't call. A lot of qualities. Take note, ladies. Just, he's going to kill me. Sorry. I love you, buddy. <clears throat> Take note. <laughs> but he's not lord of the house. Right? He doesn't run the house. I do. Right? I oversee the house. I'm held 
responsible. And yet David says, the Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord, to the Messiah, to one of my descendants, to one of my sons, who is greater than I am, who far exceeds me, I yield to him. But notice, Jesus doesn't answer his own question. Why? He doesn't answer his own question. Why? Because he's forcing the scribe and the religious leaders to be confronted by the answer. The Messiah is not simply David's son. Ultimately, he's not the son of David only, primarily, firstly. The Messiah is the son of God, primarily, firstly. Of first importance. The reason the scribe was only close to the kingdom is because to enter the kingdom, one must acknowledge the rightful king. We must be confronted, therefore, by the king. Jesus was a descendant of David because, and listen to this, Jesus was a descendant of David because of his incarnation. But that wasn't the truest thing about Jesus. It is not the Davidic lineage that matters most. It is the anointed or divine lineage that is far, far superior. David's reign was only ever a mere shadow. And what made David, David and his reign great and what he, it was not what he did. It is not who he conquered. It was not the vastness of his kingdom or the expansiveness of his wealth. What made David great was the object of his deepest affection. David was a man after God's own heart. David's heart beat after God's heart beat. David sought to love supremely, esteem most dearly, exalt most triumphantly the God most high, the creator and sustainer of everything. Yet now here is Jesus, who's the very heart of God. Jesus incarnate who became a son of David. The heart of God wrapped in flesh. The beloved son on whom the father had set his, his affection and seal of approval. You see, it's not enough to simply see Jesus, to hear Jesus, or to simply understand who Jesus is. We can get close to the kingdom, but we can only enter the kingdom when we love the king. Entrust ourselves to the king. Set the full force of our affections on the king. Or to put our faith and trust in him alone, as Paul says in Romans. We must be confronted by the Son of God. So, so let me ask you this. Where are you at? Where are you at this morning? Where are you at this week? Where are you at in this season of your life? Do you love King Jesus? I mean, do you love? Do you recklessly love? Are you willing to cast, to lose anything? Maybe everything. But to have him alone? Where are you at this morning? And listen, don't be so quick to answer that question. M meditate on it. Wrestle with it. Use this question to examine your own life. 
Use this question to look at your bank account, to look at your time, to look at your relationships. Use this question to ask, where am I spending my off time, my entertainment? How am I distracting myself? How does that relate to my love for Jesus? Do you love the king? Do you really love the king? Because that is the thing, the only thing, that at the end of all things is going to matter most. Do you love the king? You are going to stand. All of us are going to stand before the judgment seat. Every single one of us. Even if you don't believe in God, you're going to stand before the judgment seat. He's going to say, What do you think of my son? What do you think of my son? And if you don't love Jesus now, how are you going to love him then? How are you going to love him then? But he's given us this life now. He's given you today. Today. You don't know if you have tomorrow. You don't even know if you have the rest of today. But today is the day to know him. To love him. To entrust yourself to him. To renew your love. To come back to your first love. And to delight yourself in him. Are you confronted by the king? But, but not just today. Are you confronted by the king daily? We have to be. Everything else is meaningless outside of that one question. Do you love the king? Will you be confronted by the king daily? Jesus leaves his question hanging, and there's no record that the scribe ever answered it. However, we do know that after this exchange, the next day in chapter 14, verse 1, Mark tells us, two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. The chief priests and the scribes sought to arrest him by stealth and kill him. The scribes were instrumental in plotting the execution of Jesus, of, of moving forward, of making accusations so that the son of David, who is the son of God, might hang on a tree. Jesus will publicly rail the scribes in the next section we'll look at in Mark. But even here, with this question, Jesus silences the best teachers in Israel. And the crowd, what is the crowd's response? The crowd loves it. They love it. It's awesome. Look at the end of verse 37. The crowd's response and the, and the great throng. I love that. The great throng. The great crowd. This mass of people who's been watching the day unfold. Jesus being drilled by these trick questions. The elite of Israel coming to Jesus to put him in his place. And Jesus flips the tables. Says, you don't know what you're talking about. You're wrong. And he puts the elite on their butts. Because he's the living God. The crowd's eating it up. Jesus in one day undermined the Sanhedrin, caught the Pharisees and the Herodians in their own moral trap, 
rebuked the Sadducees and silenced the intellectual elite scribes. Who doesn't love a good underdog story, right? Of course the crowd loves it. We all love underdog stories. They're eating it up. But here's my third point. We can't simply be impressed by the Son of Man. We must bow before the Son of God. What do I mean? The crowd's impressed with Jesus. He's outsmarted the smartest sages in Israel. Not only did he answer all their most difficult questions, but he silenced them with one of his own. The great throng is impressed by Jesus as a man, but they too, they too completely miss the implication of his question. The crowd, like Jesus, they like him, they love him. Most people actually like Jesus, at least initially. But remember, there are likely some, some among this great crowd, this great throng, who three days later will shout, crucify him, crucify him. From a safe di distance, it's easy to be impressed with Jesus, to, to like Jesus. We can view him as our friend or as a great teacher or maybe as a role model. These are versions of Jesus that we're actually pretty comfortable with. We like that kind of Jesus. In Christ, God might be the God of all comfort. In Christ, God might be the God of all comfort, but we must be careful that we do not allow ourselves to grow too comfortable with the Son of God. He might be the God of all comfort, but we have to be careful that we don't become too comfortable with the Son of God. A question, God has a question for you. God has a question for me. He's got a question for each one of us. It's the same question he asked his first disciples. Who do you, who do you say that I am? His question is meant to make us uncomfortable, to unsettle us from our complacency, from our comfort, from our indifference. His question demands an answer, and no one is exempt from answering his question. One day, everyone will be confronted by the Son of God, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. But, but why wait for one day when it, when it will be too late? What about today? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he merely a son of man, a descendant of David, or is he who he claims to be, the very Son of God? You and I must guard us against allowing ourselves to simply be impressed with Jesus, to admire him from a distance. But as Jesus taught the scribe, we must love him as the Son of God. We must love him as the Son of God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind with all of our strength. So, let me ask you this. With that in mind, that we must love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, let me ask you this. Where have your heart's affections become dull to King Jesus? Where have they become dull? Where do you struggle to be awed by His majesty, wowed by His authority, and His love for you, demonstrated by his incarnation, his perfection, his obedience, his suffering, his sacrifice, his atonement, and his death for you. Where, have you, where, where is that 
become dull in your own heart? Where does your soul, where does it wane in its dependence upon his justice, his righteousness, his kindness, his holiness, his gentleness, his strength, his power, and his patience for you? Where does your soul wane? Where is your mind? Where is it dulled, numbed, or complacent because you're not overcome by his glory? His splendor, his vastness, his graceness, greatness, his profundity, his infinitude, his eternality, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his all-powerfulness, his omnipotence. Where is your mind dulled? How has your strength become wearied, working, slaving, laboring, striving, to prove your worthiness, your value, your righteousness, your justification. Where are you tired? Where are you worth, worn out, weary, heavy laden? Especially you, believer. You of all people. You have been united to the life of God himself in the person of Christ. You have been united to the living God in Christ. You've been given new life, resurrected life. And the very presence and power of God dwells in you through his Holy Spirit. So that you, in this frail and fallen life, in this sin-stained and saturated world, may participate in the power, life, authority, strength, endurance, freedom, vitality of the living God through your union with the resurrected Lord. That is yours. That is yours in Christ. He has given it to you. He has paid every cost. He's left nothing unfinished. It is done. It is yours. The King of kings. The Lord of lords. Triumphal savior. Victory. Victorious slain lamb. The great high priest. The son of God. This is who Jesus is. Jesus has a question for you. Who do you say? That he is now. Right now. Who do you say that he is? He's inviting you to re renew your messianic vision. And see Jesus anew. Not simply as the son of man. He, he's asking you to be uncomfortable with him. Anew. To see him for who he truly is. The son of God. Let's pray. Jesus, you stand alone. You alone are holy and righteous. You alone are worthy to save. You alone have paid the price that we could never pay to buy a people who didn't deserve your love. You have made enemies of God your friend. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, would you renew our vision? Would you prick our hearts? Would you crush our pride so that we can see Jesus clearly? That we can love him with a reckless love as he has loved us. That this life would not be our life, but would be his life in us. 
that we might live through Him and with Him and in all things. We might adore Him and proclaim Him and announce Him. God, by Your Spirit, give us the power to overcome the simplicity, the ignorance, the dullness of our lives. Lord, help us out of the mire of the sinfulness of this world, the the burdens that we bear, the cares that weigh us down, that are heavy, that drown us and seek to destroy us. Jesus, you are not just the Son of Man, though you know us, you have walked with us. You are a great high priest who isn't immune, who didn't abstain from the mess of this world, but you have dwelt with us. You have bore what we could not bore. And you have risen from the grave. You have defeated sin, Satan, and death. So God, we pray that you would renew, resurrect in us a clear vision of you as the Son of God. Capture our affections, Lord. Help us in our unbelief, we pray. In Jesus' name and for your glory, we pray. Amen.